Well, good morning, and thank you again for an opportunity to be with you again this week. Uh, we're grateful for the team getting back safely, and I think everyone's in good health, and that's a wonderful provision of the Lord. We will be returning to John's Gospel, and we're back in John's Gospel, chapter 17, and <clears throat> we're going to try, as best I can, I hope, to look through the remainder of this chapter. Um, it's always a, a concerning moment for me when I think of how much I've come up with and how we're going to use that, and so my prayer is that the Lord will speak to our hearts, that we will see Him in a rich and deep way in these moments together. So we'll be looking there in John chapter 17, and we'll start with verse 6 and work our way through. And you'll remember that I shared with us last week a little bit of how John 17 is broken down. It's a prayer of Jesus, often now in recent centuries, if you will, referred to as his high priestly prayer. And it falls along the lines of the priest for Israel, praying first for himself, praying then for those close to him, his family, and then praying for all of the people. So that's what we'll be looking through as we do this, but we, I believe, need to get into the moment of what's taking place. And so as you recall, I mentioned how if you look at John's Gospel chapters 13 through 17, you see five chapters that are covering the upper room time of Jesus. And as one author has noted, it's probably about five hours in time that all this takes place. It's this slow motion moment in the life of Jesus. In my work at Parkwood as pastoral care, I'm not uncommonly alongside of someone who is near the end of their life. I don't know how many of you have ever had someone close to you, close in your family, and you knew that the end was coming. And there was that waiting, there was that lingering, and that kind of gathering together a family, and that's happened for some of our families this week. But have you ever been in a situation where you had no idea, there was no moment that made you think that this was going to happen. One of our dear brothers who's been involved in a lot of the work there in Honduras was there in Honduras just a few weeks back, about well over a month ago now. And they arrived on a Monday and he worked on Tuesday and on Wednesday the Lord called him home. Maybe you've had an experience like that. Jesus has been telling his disciples all through the Gospels, everyone you read, and especially in John's Gospel, that he is going to leave. And they don't understand it. They don't really know what he's talking about. They can't make sense of it. And here we are in chapter 17. They've been in the upper room. They've had the Passover dinner. He's washed their feet and he's praying before his father. And this is probably the most intimate moment that the disciples have ever experienced with their Savior. I, I get kind of goosebumps in my arms to think about this. Jesus knows what's about to happen. In those first few verses, he has said, My hour, Father, my hour has come. And 
that throughout the Gospel of John is this indication of the timeless one from eternity past has somehow entered into time and space. He has lived the life that you and I live. He knows what we deal with. And you know, the remarkable thing is he was never hurried. I don't know about you, but that's one of my problems is feeling hurried and concerned about time. And you see him there in John 2 and again in John 7 saying, my time has not yet come. He was so timely. And I want to encourage you, he still is today. He's still timely. But here in John's gospel, he is literally on the cusp of being arrested at the garden, going before his accusers and being nailed to a cross within hours. And at this moment in this prayer, the disciples don't understand that. So if you will, we are stepping into this upper room together. And we're listening in as the disciples did. They've stopped their questions. Their voices have gone silent. And Jesus has turned to his heavenly father. And he is talking to him about what is most important on his heart and mind. This is remarkable when we consider what it is. We're talking about the Son of God who has always had an intimate relationship with his Father and with the Spirit. And he has stepped into time and space and an earth suit, an earthly body like yours and like mine. And he understands what it is to be hungry and what it is to be tired and what it is to need sleep and how much he longs to go away and pull aside and spend time with his father that he has never known differently than now in this particular role where he has set aside his glory. They're not seeing it. It's peeking out, as I mentioned last week, in little places like in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. And they saw a glimpse of his glory. And you see it throughout John's gospel. And here in his opening prayer, he starts talking to his father about that glory and how he wants his disciples to see that glory. And so we have these verses in front of us. If I may, let me start with verse 6 of John's Gospel, chapter 17. He says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they've believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. One of the things that often comes my way in what I do is to visit hospitals. Up until COVID, I was in hospitals almost every day throughout the Charlotte region for various folks. And one of my joys, quite honestly, in being with our folks is having a moment to pray for them. I will admit, early on in that particular part of the ministry, I began to struggle with the other people that were there when I wanted to pray for someone. And thinking, I want to shut out everything and simply pray for this individual. And there, there might be a doctor that has made a couple of comments and he's still there. And I'm thinking, okay, he doesn't sound like he's believing or trusting the Lord. And there might be unbelieving family members. And, and what I found myself doing was taking that moment and placing myself in the presence of my Holy Heavenly Father and shutting everything out and coming to Him with you in mind. Now, the reason I share this with you is because when I would finish, I would get some of the most interesting comments from people. They were struck by the prayer. Not because of me. It was because... I was simply stepping in and speaking to my father as if I stepped up and I was speaking directly to you and ignoring everything else that was going on around me. You know, have you thought about this, that when we come to church and you're here and someone steps up and it's obvious that you want to have a quick conversation, you do your best to tune out everything else. My wife has taught me well to look them in the eye and tune my ear and shut out my thoughts and take in what they're saying. Friends, that's what Jesus is doing here. He has shut out everything. He knows he's about to go to the cross. But he wants to speak with his father. And he has no problem with the disciples listening into that. And they are hearing his deepest desires. In that moment that they will reflect back on. And think, think of what he said. And so we want to think about this in John 17, that it's a much fuller picture of what I've just described. The room is quiet. And as you go home today, I want you to consider noticing several things about John 17. Look how many times Jesus calls his father by name. There are six times in these 26 verses that he calls him Father. And once he calls him Holy Father, as I was listening to our worship set, and this concentration on holy, it just reminded us there is no one holy but God himself. And he calls his Father by that name. Have you had a conversation with someone where, you know, they say, Stephen, I was just wanting to tell you about what happened yesterday. You know, Stephen, you can't imagine how amazing it was when we went to... And Stephen, and about the fourth time they're saying your name, you're thinking, okay, I got it, I got it. But, but what does it do when someone calls your name several times in a conversation? It grabs your attention. You see the earnestness in what they're saying. 
And if you're, if you're a ch- parent with a child, you might be saying, Now, John, I told you once, John. I told you twice, John. And th- I'm not telling you a, th- a third time, John. <laughs> you know the intensity of that. Jesus is in this moment with his father, and he's calling him Father. When you speak to God, when you pray, how do you address him? Is there this intimate relationship with your heavenly father that says, oh, what it is to be with you in your presence and to talk to you and even to shut the world out and to have that moment where your heart is one with his And so we see this earnest tone. The disciples here are listening in and they're hearing him talk to his father. So we see father six times. If I may just mention a few other words because I'd love for you to go back at at sometime today or this week and just kind of catch what's going on in this one chapter. We see that Jesus says four times talking about his father, your name, your name. What is happening there? What it is about the Father's name? Well, I I wish we had time to develop this, but um, have you ever considered that when when Jesus sends the disciples to go into all the world to preach the gospel, baptizing them, how? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In your name. We are baptized in his name. What does it mean, in his name? Oh, there's so much to talk about there. We've got to move on. But we also see that he manifested the Father's name to the people the Father had given him. He kept the disciples in the Father's name. He made the Father's name known to those the Father had sent to him. Those little words are so full of meaning. And then we find two forms of the Greek word for to know here. And it's repeated nine different times, to know. Jesus speaks of the disciples knowing the Father in verse 3 and knowing that everything he had given to the Son was from the Father in verse 7. They came to know in truth that the Son came from the Father. And in the closing verses of verse 23 and 25, Jesus speaks, and 26, Jesus speaks of the disciples and those who will believe in the Son through their word becoming perfectly one that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. And finally, the son speaks of the world not knowing the father, but the son. And his disciples know that he has sent the son. And of course, the the question that we really ask is, do you know him? We had a service at our church a few years back for one of our elderly ladies that passed away. She and her husband had been married 70 plus years. And her grandson was there and he wanted to speak and he did and... He said some things that were really kind of strange and afterwards I was talking with his sister and it took me, it it caught me off guard for a moment. I was asking her a little bit about him and she looked at me with this clear-eyed face and said, I really don't know him. And I'm thinking, did I get the wrong person? (laughs) You are his sister, right? I didn't say that. But I pondered that after that and I realized while they were siblings and they had grown up together, what she was saying is, I don't understand who he is. 
I don't know why he does what he does. And there's a lot of history in that that we don't need to talk about. But that really resonated with me. I don't really know him. And the question for you and me is, do we really know the Father? Do we know the Son? Do we know what it is to have the Spirit in us? It is richer than anything we can experience in our lives. And my prayer is that it's true for you. And if not, that it will be. Maybe you've heard the phrase, the world is on God's heart. Have you ever heard someone say that? The world is on God's heart. Talking about him and missions and things like that. If you look at John 17, it would be a logical conclusion because the word world appears 18 times in this one chapter. Jesus, talking to his father, is greatly concerned about the world that you and I are living in today. It is on his heart. And he's talking about it in several different ways that are really helpful for us because he speaks of those the Father gave him out of the world, that his prayer is limited to those the Father gave to him. He's not praying for the world, he says, and he's no longer in the world. And you know, you're hearing this and think, you're no longer in the world? He's already seeing himself having done all of the work, completely obedient to the Father, and stepping into eternity where he will be at the right hand of the Father, ever living to, again, to pray, to intercede for you and for me. Jesus speaks of the world in a collective sense as a group that has hated him. And by association, they've hated his disciples. The reason is because they are not of the world, just as the Son is not of the world. Consider all of the little words that Jesus uses in connection with the world. Uh, these are very intriguing, and I, I mentioned last week, I, I can't explain why, but I have this interest in words and how they come together and how we form thoughts and how we communicate. And we see here that we find before the world, out of the world, for the world, in the world, of the world, and into the world <laughs> in this one chapter. So what does that mean? I just lay that out there for you. If you want to do some study that I think will be very enriching is what does it mean to be before? Jesus was before the foundation of the world. Well, that's, that's a time-space continuum conversation for something to be in front of something else. And so you're looking at finiteness, the limit of this world, and infinite, the unlimited of God, and his son was before all of that. And so you can just go on and on into those things, but he's before, he's out of it, he's, and it just goes on. And so now, as we look here at chapter 17, verses 6 and following, our main point, finally, is on the eve of his death, Jesus turns to his father and he prays. His prayer takes the form of this high priestly prayer and his deepest desire and request for his disciples is that we, you and I, his children, that we be one as he and the Father are one. So our model is right there before us. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They have never known anything but oneness. And he's wanting that same oneness for you and for me. Another brother I was listening to some time back was talking about this concept, and I hadn't really thought about it, but I have and not in the same way 
that when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. And so when we look at one another, the same Spirit that lives in you lives in me. How can we not get along? How can we be at odds with each other? How can we not work together for the Father? And so I just throw that out there for you, if I may, that when you're having a rub with somebody, step back and think for a second. You know, he's a believer. I'm a believer. What on earth are we doing here? She's a believer. What on earth are we doing here? You know, there's something very interesting about living or traveling abroad. I don't know if you've ever spent an extended time abroad. My wife and I spent years and years abroad. And I can remember when we were living in France, I think it was at that time, or we were traveling somewhere in Europe, but um, we were in one of those places where uh, you had what has often been known, at least for us here in the States, as the ugly American. And there were these Americans that were acting out, and they were complaining and griping, and you could hear them going on and on and on. And my wife and I chose only to speak French with each other, hoping that nobody had a clue that we too were Americans, because we didn't want to be identified with them. But there's another interesting phenomenon. So we started off in the country of Guinea, West Africa, which uh, I like to use my left hand, if you will, and this is kind of like the continent of Africa here, and my thumb would be the bulge of Africa, and we were just below this western point of Africa here in the country of Guinea, and there weren't a whole lot of Americans when we went there in the 80s. And you know what was really interesting? Oh, you're an American. And it was like suddenly we just found best buddies. And, and you stop and you think, you know, I don't think we'd have anything to do with each other if we were back in America. But somehow or another, we're the same once we find each other in a place like that. Well, that's not a great illustration, but hopefully it will help us think about something. When you find another believer, does your heart resonate? Does it jump inside, this is a brother, this is a sister, this is someone else that loves Jesus, this is someone else that was chosen by the Father as a gift to the Son, and the Son is preparing them as a gift back to the Father, just like he's doing with you? Do we see each other as the Father's gift to the Son? And it's an invaluable gift. There's no value that you can put on it. Because Jesus and the Father have put that worth on you. He has invested worth in us as his creation for his glory. And he wants us to see that glory as we see here. So facing the great crisis of his life, Jesus was thinking about you and me. He was thinking about his disciples. And his will is that we should see him in his glory. So we see now, starting in verse 6, Jesus prays for his disciples. These are those that are right there with him, the 11 that are there. And the Son manifested or made known the Father's name to them, the name of the Father. He showed them the Father's name. We read in Luke chapter 10, verse 22, all things have been handed over to me, Jesus says. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, there's nothing you and I can do. 
It takes the work of the Father and the Son to open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our understanding to who the Son is and who the Father is. And Jesus is saying to his Father in this prayer, I have made your name known to these disciples. Wow. I was thinking it was mine. I'm just glad it's not mine doing that. Uh, and, um, and, and here they are, hearing him pray like this and realizing that indeed the son made the father known to them and they would never have known who he was. Do you know him? Oh, do you know him? You know, it's really interesting for us in French. We have two words for to know. One of them is the word that we get our word reconnaissance and, and that kind of idea. It's the word connaissance. And it, it means to know someone as an individual or to know them as a person. But when you talk about knowing how or know, having a skill, we talk about that word savoir or savoir-faire, knowing how to do something. And we don't mix those up. And so you know when someone's not a native French speaker, when they say savoir for knowing someone, like, do you know Stephen? And they say, yes, I, kn I know him using the word savoir. Je le sais. And it's like, no, you don't say that for a person. But it's, it's such a generic term. We still don't get into the depths of what it means to know someone. And the same is true as we look at it even in the Greek with the various words that are there. We try to get into that idea, but it's clear in the context that it's not just knowing someone superficially. It's not just knowing who they are. It's that the Son revealed to the disciples who his Father was. And that was his greatest desire, his greatest joy, was to make his Father known. And the work of the Spirit will come behind that in the believer and continue to unfold both the Father and the Son to you and me as believers. The disciples are the Father's gift to the Son. And Jesus says about them in this prayer, they have kept the Father's word. He has revealed the word and they have kept that word. Now we know in the New Testament that Jesus is obedient even to death, even to the cross. He doesn't miss one jot or one tittle of the law. He keeps it absolutely perfectly. In fact, if you will, if Jesus had simply come to this earth as a full-grown being and gone straight to the cross and died for us, there would be a problem. There would be something actually missing. It required a life of obedience to fulfill the requirements for an innocent sacrifice. And Jesus was that innocent sacrifice. It was the worst trial that ever could have happened. And it happened in the middle of the night when it shouldn't have happened. And it led to an execution which was not even possible for the Jewish people. And so he was innocent to the highest degree of innocence. And have you ever thought of what that means for you and for me? We had a, a lawyer that's passed on at the church, but he was a, a lawyer that tried cases in federal court. And one of his observations when we talk about what Jesus did for us was he didn't simply put on your life and mine that you're no longer guilty. Our case doesn't say not guilty. 
Now that may make you think, what? It goes one step farther. It says, innocent. Have you ever thought of that? You can go to court charged of something that you actually did, and the jury, because of whatever reasons or technicalities or reasonable doubt, can say, not guilty. And inside, in your heart, you know the truth, don't you? You know whether you did or didn't do that. But Jesus takes that robe of righteousness because of an innocent life that died in your place and mine, and he says, give me your robe, and I will give you mine. And our sin is on his shoulder. You know, one of the interesting things that you may remember is Jesus went to where John was baptizing purposefully to be baptized. And you may know that in the baptisms, the people that were being baptized in John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And when they were going into the water, they would confess their sins. And the Gospels record for us that Jesus came straightway from the water, is the term that Mark likes to use, immediately. Because Jesus had no sins to confess. So what took place there? As they entered those waters and their sins were washed away, it was as if Jesus entered into that sin-drenched water and took on your sin and mine that he could carry it to the cross for you and me. And so we see this beautiful picture of our Savior who has made known the Father's words to his disciples, and he has purchased our redemption. They, the disciples, are the Father's gift, and they have kept his word. And the Father sent the Son to die for his disciples. Notice how simple the prayer is. He talks to his Father about several things to do with his disciples and how they have kept his word and how they have received him and all of these things but then he prays simply two things that they would share his glory and they would share his preserving and sanctifying word and that's the same thing that the Lord Jesus our Savior wants for you and me that we will share his glory and that we will know his preserving and sanctifying word that word that is continuing to make us more and more like our Savior every day when Laura and I met almost well it was 40 years ago this month um, I have to confess it wasn't long before we were very interested in one another we were a little older at that time in our mid to late 20s and um, you know, it was interesting. It, it didn't take much for somebody to get me to talk about her and to talk about how much she meant to me and how much I hoped that maybe this was the one the Lord had for me. And it was just part of who I was. And it still is of who she is and what she means to me. The son is praying to the father. And notice, I want you to go back some point and just look at how he describes these disciples. Even Peter that he's just told, you're about to deny me. How he describes these disciples to his father. And then he makes these two requests. And then as we move on to the next section, I want us to touch on verses 20 to 26. Because we see something very different that's happening here. In John 17 verse 20 and following. Jesus moves from praying for those 11 around him. 
And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's given the Father's word to the disciples and he's entrusting them to take that word and to share it. You can, you can almost see Jesus having the Great Commission in mind as he's saying this in his prayer. And he's praying for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so the world so that the world may believe that you have sent me so who is he praying for he's prayed for himself remember the high priestly prayer he's prayed for those right there with him he is praying for you and for me and he's just told his father about the things that are dearest to his heart about these 11 have you thought of how Jesus prays for you? How precious you are to him? What does he tell the Father about you? Oh, this and that and the other. And that you would keep him and keep her. That you would protect them and sanctify them. He is at the right hand of the Father, ever living to intercede for you and for me. And here he's praying for you and me. We find an inside view in this chapter especially of the soul of our Savior. One commentator, Dr. Ferguson, has said that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, they show us the external Jesus in good ways, in important ways. But John takes us to see the soul of Jesus. You know it when you read about the raising of Lazarus and we see him there with Mary and Martha and how deeply he's touched by their loss and how he mourns with them and weeps with them even though he's about to call Lazarus from the grave. So Jesus prays for those who will believe in him through the disciples' word. Do you realize that all that you and I know and have is from God's word of who God is, who the Father is, who the Son is? It's because of these disciples that we have this precious, divinely inspired record to tell us truth, to tell us about life, to tell us about salvation. And so they did their work. And he's praying for us. Now, it's interesting. When he prays about being one, it's not like what has been thought, I think, of recent decades when we talk about, you know, the churches, they just all need to get together. They need to be one. It's much different, I think, than that. He's talking about you and me being one with one another that a watching world sees us and says, look where they're from. They're from all over the place. Different backgrounds, different kinds of jobs, different economic standing, from all kinds of things. Different countries, different races, different whatever. And we're unified, we're one because of what the Father and the Son have done for us. And his prayer is that we will be one. And I must say, there's more division in the church in America than I've ever seen in all my life. Now that's not to say that everybody in the church is a believer. We do know that that's not true. But even believers struggle with one another, don't they? And do you realize here in your town, 
that people that see and know that you're here together, the greatest effect you can have is the answer to this prayer. That they see you and they see this oneness among you because of who our Savior is and they cannot explain it. They are at an absolute loss for the love and care and mercy and grace and all that takes place because you are one in Him. What he's praying for here is the spiritual unity and fellowship of believers and for their love for one another so to make an impact on the world that people would say as they come among Christian people there's only one conceivable explanation for this kind of love. This is not love that you can find naturally on earth. Jesus is the only explanation for this kind of love for one another. It's one of the reasons I think why we need to understand that it's what we are as a church fellowship that is the single most important element in our evangelistic witness to the world because it's what we become in our relationships with one another that when those who are not believers are drawn into this church, they say, I didn't know church was like this. I didn't realize there was this kind of fellowship, this kind of mutual esteem among believers. And so this is Jesus' prayer that they, you and I, would be one as we are one in order that the world may believe that the Father sent us, I'm sorry, that the Father sent the Son to be the world's Savior. And we see here the nature of our unity as Christians. Just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. That sort of unity. There is no disunity between the Father and the Son. Secondly, we see that we may also be in the Father and the Son. So there is this unity that is just so wrapped up in everything of who we are, just as the Father and the Son are. We see its purpose. The purpose is so that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. We're living in a world that doesn't believe. Many even want to say there is no God. Many want to say that you can't know God. And Jesus is saying, no, you can know him. And you can know the Father through me. And you can only know him through me. And he has sent you and me to be his representatives. And for the glory of Jesus and the Father to be in us. And a watching world to see it in a way that is unexplainable. And Jesus prayed for these things. Notice how he expresses his prayer. Father, I want. I desire. It's completely different from the way he's about to pray when he goes to the garden. There he will say, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. Yet here he says, Father, this is my will. Let my will be done. He's able to pray this prayer because he's going to pray that prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. This prayer that he makes before the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is about what will take place because of that prayer. He makes in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he prays, Father, your will be done, I'll go to the cross. I'm willing to die for their sins. I'm going to sacrifice myself for them. Father, I tremble at the cross, but your will, not my will, be done. And because the father has heard that prayer, the father then says to his son, as you know in Psalm 2, my son, ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance. 
There's one more thing that Jesus wants. He says, I want them to see me in my glory. Jesus wants to celebrate his victory over sin and death with his disciples and with us. His disciples, they had seen him in his temptations and how he endured. They saw him rejected. They would see him humiliated and would gather around the cross and hear him cry out in a loud voice, My God, why have you forsaken me? And you know, you and I, we too have seen him demeaned. We hear the Lord Jesus despised. We hear his name used in vain. We sometimes feel the pain of being his disciples and his followers. We find ourselves at times overwhelmed by the mystery of the situation of belonging to the church in a world like this. My heart has been heavy for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine over these recent days and the things that they're going through. And I find myself praying, Oh, Father, protect them. Strengthen them in the inner being. Enable them to stand firm in their faith and having done all to stand, to stand. Keep them in your love and let their neighbors see who you are. Let your glory be lived out through them. And we see here in this prayer that there's an encouragement and a future blessing. This prayer will be answered. Jesus' prayers are always answered. Now, someone has said, Jesus doesn't answer my prayers. But the truth is, he did. He just said no. <laughs> and we don't always like that. But he always answers the son's prayers in the affirmative. Because the son knows exactly what the father wants. And it reminds us of what the psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O Lord. Your word is, your law is written on my heart. That's who Jesus was. That's who he is. And so this prayer will be answered. And a future blessing. You have given me, should be with me. Father, I desire that those you have given me should be with me where I am to see my glory, the glory that you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And so as we come to a close of these moments, I have some questions for us. Beloved, where do you stand with God? In your heart of hearts, where do you stand with God? Do you love him? Do you love him more today than you did last year? Do you find your faith has grown cold? Do you have this longing that's not being fulfilled? Do you love his word? Is it captivating when you read it? Do you find his spirit stirring your heart when you take time to linger over it? How often do you read it? Is it something that happens once a week? We can go too far one way or the other. Someone has said, one of my professors many years ago, there is a, what he would call the center of biblical tension between two opposing things. So you've got an extreme on one side and the other, and here in the middle was this tension. So you might have, for instance, 
legalism on the one hand and absolute no law on the other hand. And somewhere in the middle of that was this tension of obedience and following the Lord and doing what he asks us to do. And his observation was about the closest any of us ever get to that center of biblical tension is when the pendulum is swinging past it going to the other side. (laughs) It's a little bit humorous, but isn't that where we tend to be? Because it's hard to stay in the middle of that tension. But do you love his word? Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you pray to your heavenly father? Do you share with him what's on your heart? What your desires are? Do you listen to what his desires are for you and for his church and for his world? When this world squeezes you, and it will, what comes out? Is it like that little bottle that has had a a change in temperature? Because it was on the plane with you and you got off the plane and you opened the top and it just spewed out on you. Maybe you've had that happen. Maybe you're like that. It's just the right button. And sometimes it's the person that's closest to you that you love very much. Maybe a sibling. Maybe a spouse. Maybe a parent. And when things get heated, as my mom used to say, they get historical. (laughs) Not hysterical. And they start bringing up stuff from the past. And it's like, I thought we took care of that. Well, I'm bringing it back up. And all of a sudden, everything gets hot, doesn't it? So when, when we're squeezed, what happens? Is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness? It's interesting when Galatians, Paul writing there, reminds the Galatians of the flesh He talks about the works of the flesh. And there's a whole bunch of really bad things mentioned there. But have you ever thought about it that when he talks about the works of the flesh, the word works is in the plural? But when he talks about the fruit of the spirit, the word fruit is singular. Thankfully, none of us has all of the works of the flesh. (laughs) Thank the Lord. I don't know if anybody's ever done that. But you know what? Every believer is to have all of the fruit of the Spirit. And so, I need to go back to these sometimes and say, Lord, my joy's missing. Lord, I'm not being kind. Lord, I'm not being gentle. Lord, my faith is weak. I love what one couple did, a husband and wife, and you may have heard this explanation, but um, there were times where his tone came across really harsh to her, and she would try to explain it to him, and and it just didn't seem to get anywhere. And finally one day he said, okay, here. Because she said, would you just be a little kinder and a little gentler? And he said, okay, here's our cue. When I say something and it's rubbing you wrong, just look at me and say, K and G, kinder and gentler. And he knew it was back off, calm down, and be kinder, be gentler. You know, our filters fall away the easiest in our own home with the people that are closest to us, don't they? And if there's ever a place for the fruit of the Spirit that needs to be in my life, it's there. With those I love the most, those I care about the most. Do you struggle with having an assurance that you are his? 
The answers to these questions that I've just mentioned will tell you who you are and whose you are. Are you a child of the king? If by faith you've put your trust in Jesus, you are his and he and all his glory is yours. So please don't leave here today without the certainty that you have settled that most important question in your own heart. Let us pray. Father, we've hardly touched the depths and riches of this chapter, but we are so grateful for your word that you have preserved it and prepared it and kept it for us. And Lord, I pray by the glory of your name and the work of your spirit in our hearts that as we go away from here today, we will take to heart what we have seen and heard and it will help us to know you better. It will help us to love you deeper. It will help us to walk farther with you out into the deep water of relationship that a watching world sees you in my life and ours, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.